have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner We have a wonderful program today for Spirit in Action, a presentation by David Orr, chair of the Environmental Studies Program at Oberlin College and author of five books on related issues. David spoke at UW-Eau Claire this past April, and his talk was passionate, thoughtful, challenging, and inspirational as it discussed the dangers and hopes surrounding the fate of life on this planet. Let's listen in as our Spirit in Action guest, David Orr, speaks to the topic of the global predicament. What I'd like to do tonight is talk about climate change. I want to begin with a question of why we ignored warnings about climate change and planetary deterioration for so long. I think we need to know because this cannot ever happen again. We can never again delay three or four decades from the initial warnings to the time that we begin to act. I've got an observation that time is, in this case, not our friend, neither is money. We don't have much of either before we have to act decisively and incisively, cogently and well. I want to analyze some of our energy choices because I think that uh, in the conversations this afternoon with many of you in the room tonight, I think it's clear, at least to me, that we are at near, perhaps even beyond the tipping point, as they say, in public awareness and public acceptance of issues. And now the questions come down to how do we act and how do we act well? And then finally, I want to talk about politics because these issues aren't matters of left and right. 
They're matters of how this generation, our generation, relates to all those in the future. So whatever your politics may be, conservative or liberal or Republican, Democrat or independent or just plain confused, it doesn't matter to me because we can come together around an agenda that has to do with the preservation of life on the planet for all time. This is our challenge. This is the time. This is the place. Let me begin with a quote from Nicole Krauss' wonderful little book called A History of Love. And she describes a village in Poland in which the villagers, she said, had heard rumors of unfathomable things. And because we couldn't fathom them, we failed to believe them until it was too late and we had no choice. She's talking about the Holocaust as it was about to sweep over Eastern Europe, but we've had our own version of this. And the warnings go back a long, long way. And We didn't fathom them, we didn't act on them, and now it is close to being too late. This is from the World Scientist Warning developed by the uh, Union Concerned Scientists and signed by 102 Nobel laureates in 1992 and 1,500 other scientists worldwide. This is simply an excerpt from a much longer statement. But it refers to vast human misery, the irretrievable mutilation of our earthly home on this planet. This is the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Report, now published in four volumes by Island Press. One of the warnings in this is about nonlinear changes. And just take the word nonlinear out, that's science talk for nasty surprises. And the day that this came out, this competed in the news, New York Times and the evening news on television with the uh, situation of Terry Schiavo. Whatever you think about that, that was page one. The fact that the planet was dying, as described in the largest study ever done by a thousand or more scientists worldwide looking at various ecosystems and variables and numbers about how the planet's working, the vital signs of Earth. This was page eight of the New York Times. And to the best of my knowledge, it did not make the evening news on CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox. And then the warnings began to come in form of data. On the left of the screen, on either side of me, is the Keeling curve, that sawtooth-shaped curve showing the breathing in and out of carbon in the planet. When David Keeling went to Mauna Loa in 1958, the carbon level was about 315 parts per million. Last year in December, it was a little over 382. And then on the right side of the screen is a graphic of hottest hots and wettest wets and driest dries, climate-driven weather anomalies taken from that environmental rag, Fortune magazine. And you can see what every insurance executive knows, and that is that weather is becoming, climate-driven weather events are becoming more and more serious for the insurance industry. And then the warnings began to be fast and furious. In Time magazine, be worried, be very worried. And finally, last summer, The Economist magazine got the story and Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth. But the news began to break fast and furiously. And you could see it on the front page of any newspaper across the country. This was USA Today in January. And there's a story about the Detroit auto show in the left-hand margin and the Iraqi war and oil war. And then El Nino gives USA its hottest year in 2006. In raw numbers, this is where we are. You can see that in 2007, 382 parts per million carbon against that background level prior to the industrial age of about 280 parts per million. And the record now goes back, the ice core record goes back about 650,000 years. The paleo record goes back maybe another 600,000 years. We have a long historical record of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
And we are now where we've never been before. We are in terra incognita. And the stern report uh, issued by uh, the British Exchequer in the fall of last year, Nicholas Stern, the author, an economist, uh, comes out with a different number. It's carbon dioxide equivalent units. And what he did was take six other heat-trapping gases, render them in roughly CO2 equivalent units, and the number is not 382. It comes out to about 430 parts per million. But we've got to stabilize climate, carbon emissions. That's somewhere, we're told, around 450 to 500 parts per million. But the hard news is no one knows for sure where we have to stabilize carbon to avoid the worst of what could lie ahead. And the worst of what could lie ahead, of course, is runaway climate change, where we simply lose control, and the end of that is catastrophe for us. The planet would recover. We would not. This is to point out the obvious. We're the largest emitter of heat-trapping gases on the planet. China may pass us sometime around 2009 or 2010, but right now we are the number one emitter, and the map here shows uh, roughly comparable emissions for parts of our country divided up by carbon emissions and various countries equivalent. Global warming? No. This is global destabilization. The word warming sometimes sounds very good in Oberlin, Ohio, on a January day, but that's not what's in store for us. What the science says in the fourth report of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that sea levels will be rising. And what looked like maybe a sea level rise of perhaps a meter, more recent data shows that ice is melting more rapidly than had been previously thought or previously understood. The Greenland ice sheet, which if it melts entirely, is about 20 or 23 feet of sea level rise. The Greenland ice sheet is now losing ice at the rate of about 80 cubic miles per year, a rate that will probably accelerate. Both the east and west Antarctic ice sheets are also losing mass more rapidly than anybody had ever thought. In Bill McKibben's words, everything frozen on the planet is melting, except for Dick Cheney's heart. IPCC, the fourth report, and the third report, and other scientific data says that storm severity will increase, possibly the numbers of storms as well. Disease and famine will change, as ecosystems also change. Drought and heat waves will become more probable, more severe, longer-lasting. Ecosystems will change, as weather and temperature patterns and rainfall patterns change. The forests of the southeast according to the Environmental Protection Agency, are probably not likely to survive the century. Coral bleaching now affects about half the corals on the earth, mostly because of pollution and warmer seawaters. Climate isn't something that's just over here. As climates change, other things will give way. So as the thermostat of the earth gets turned up, political and economic disorder will also happen. The IPCC and the World Health Organization now agree that there is roughly 150,000 people on the planet die of weather or climate-driven weather events. This is what I think is a summary of what lies ahead based on the science. We are already committed to a substantial warming. We have warmed the planet by about eight-tenths of a degree centigrade. It is not likely that we will stop this much before two degrees centigrade warming. 
And again, the idea that you turn the thermostat up here and nothing else wobbles over here, that's not how the world, the physical world works. And that's not the world you read about on the morning paper or you, uh, you see in the evening news. That's a world where small changes have large effects. There's a lag between the time we emit heat-trapping gases and the effects that we see in climate-driven weather events. And the lag may be, uh, according to Tim Flannery, 30 or 40 years. So that the carbon that helped to amplify Katrina several years ago from a Class 1 storm to a Class 5 storm, that was carbon emitted perhaps in the late 1970s. This lag effect is very misleading. It's too late to avoid trauma. It is not too late to avoid the worst of what lies ahead. And in a system dedicated to denial, this is a hard message to get across. But there will be trauma. There will be severe adjustments. We have waited too late. Those rumors of unfathomable things because we didn't fathom them. We didn't believe them. But it is not too late to avoid the worst and to do much better than what is presently in prospect. There is no easy way out. When I look at the policy debate about this, the hard news is, as Winston Churchill put it in Britain in 1940, he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I don't know we're quite to that point yet, but there are no easy answers for this. There is no magic bullet. As Bill McKibben puts it, there may be magic buckshot, lots of separate small answers. But we've waited too long for any kind of easy way out. I think Al Gore has it right when he says that this is the first global emergency since we have been on the planet. We have every reason to take it seriously and act decisively, boldly. So why have we ignored the warnings? Let me offer a couple of suggestions. Maybe we didn't hear the warnings. The Fairness Doctrine established in 1949 by the Federal Communications Commission and the administration of Harry Truman That was tossed out in 1987. And what the Fairness Doctrine said was that to hold license to the public airwaves, those are your airwaves and mine, you had to present all sides of an issue. And if a station didn't do that, then you and I could take them to court, or somebody could, and they might lose their license. And so they had to be willing to present all sides of a given issue. But that was tossed out in 1987 by the Reagan administration. And in its place was a criteria that just said the profitability of the station was the only real criteria for holding a license. And then the rest comes in the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996 that allowed concentration of the media. So one company can own radio stations and television stations and newspapers all serving the same media market. Maybe we didn't hear clearly those rumors of unfathomable things. We can't let this happen again. So one of the answers that we've got to come up with is how to control, how to change media strategies so rumors of unfathomable things and the science and the rational debate about alternatives gets out to the public. Right now, Clear Channel, for example, owns 1,200 radio stations across the United States, 36 television stations, 776,000 advertising displays, rumors of unfathomable things. When the World Press Association looked at the U.S. press, they found out that the U.S. press, against the criteria of freedom of the press, rates 27th of all presses across the world. 27th. We fight for democracy in Iraq, but we undermine it here at home in all kinds of ways. 
When Ben Bedikian wrote his Media Monopoly in 1980, he complained. That's the classic study of media in the United States. Bedikian complained that there were only, only 50 major media outlets. And now we're down to six, and some would put it at five, one of which is Fox News, an oxymoron. But we wonder why we didn't take this seriously. Now, every one of you that is a CNN watcher or uh, whatever knows a whole lot more about Anna Nicole Smith, I'll bet, than you really want to know. Rumors of unfathomable things. Maybe we didn't hear the rumors or we didn't hear them insistently or consistently enough. James Madison, who had good reason to know, is the author of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. A popular government without information or the means to acquire it is either prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. Rumors that were never told, science that was never reported, debate and dialogue that never took place. Why we ignored warnings? Well, there are other reasons as well. There is this power of mass distraction, and over the past 100 years or a bit longer, we've engaged in the largest experiment ever to deflect human intelligence in different directions, to make us dependable consumers, not neighbors, not citizens, not people who could understand unfathomable rumors, but simply people who were good consumers. Much of this is the work of Edward Bernays, among others. Edward Bernays was the founder of the modern advertising firm, and he was a nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud. He brought to advertising the whole idea of Freudian psychology. Car companies asked him to sell cars, and what Bernays decided was you don't sell automobiles by appealing to the superego that you're going to do some kind of good in the world. You don't sell cars by appealing to the ego or the rational mind. You sell cars by appealing to the id all those bad, nasty sorts of things that we think and our fears and our lusts and our envies and greeds, all those seven deadly sins. And so what Bernays decided was you sell cars not by what they do as uh, instruments of mobility, but what they can symbolize. And the symbolism he chose was sexual potency. And so cars became the sign of a potent male. And to sell them, you just had to drape a half-clad woman over the hood of a Buick or whatever, and the annual style change, and men were suckered into doing this. But not the appeal to rational mind. To sell cigarettes to half of the potential market that didn't smoke, Bernays made smoking for women a sign of rebellion against men. Cigarettes were called little torches of freedom. And he would stage these events on Fifth Avenue where debutantes would come down the street and then stop uh, before a, a group of cameras and pull up their skirts and pull out a cigarette and light it in front of the cameras. The pictures went all over the world and all over the United States trying to get women to smoke cigarettes. Again, not the appeal of the superego or ego, but down here to the id. Tap into resentment and fear. Bernays later went on to sell political candidates in the same way. We were, became accustomed to our candidates our public servants being sold to us like cars and cigarettes or a can of peas or a six-pack of beer. But the appeal was to fear, and we see the effect on our politics. There is scarcely a child anywhere in the world that doesn't know the Coca-Cola logo. And we're told on good authority that young people know, on average, a thousand corporate logos by the time they're teenagers, but fewer than ten plants and animals native to the places in which they live. Rumors of unfathomable things. And then there's the appeal to the id. 
I don't know who made this advertisement, but the words here, hear that, it's the ground whimpering. You know, if you need to make the ground whimper, if that's your solution, what was your problem? Why not just go straight to nuclear weapons? It will really whimper then. And then there's this advertisement. This is the rear end of a Hummer. And the words you can't quite make out say that when the asteroid hits and civilization crumbles, you'll be ready. And you wonder, ready for what? This thing gets 10 feet per gallon. What are you ready to do? Rumors of unfathomable things. The largest effort ever to deflect human psychology to make us dependable consumers so that we would never understand or fathom whatever rumors or whatever evidence or whatever data was being presented. This is Abraham Maslow's triangle of self-actualization, and we all start down at infantile self-gratification. If we get good in life, we move up through various levels of self-mastery and self-esteem, and at the very top, if we really master life, we reach transcendence. That's the finest and greatest among us. But Bernays had another idea. It was to keep us locked down here. Rumors of unfathomable things. We talk a lot about a sustainable world, but a sustainable society has to have people who can fathom rumors, who understand science, who understand how the world works as a physical system and why that is important for us and for their prospects and for all life yet to come. You're listening to a Spirit in Action visit with David Orr, chair of the Environmental Studies Program at Oberlin College. He's authored five books, including The Last Refuge, Patriotism, Politics, and the Environment. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, your host for this Northern Spirit Radio production of a talk David Orr presented at the university here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Many people talk about the environmental challenges, but David now leads us on a quick explanation of some of the alternatives and possible solutions to the looming dangers. Here's what I think we've got to do, and here's the hard part of this talk, to try to begin to think about the policy choices before us. If we are to engage in problem-solving, not just problem-switching, what we do cannot cause other problems. We can't trade one problem for another. We can't trade off energy production for increased threat of terrorism. They have to solve for security. In other words, what will solve these problems has to solve more than one problem. We need to create security by design as we create a pattern of security so that no one on the planet is threatened by what we do. It has to be technically feasible. It has to be competitive. And here we need to weigh options by how much carbon is removed per dollar spent. They have to be deployed quickly. We don't have 10 or 20 or 30 years to begin to research these things. Scientific evidence says we have got to act now. 450 to 500 parts per million is a very stringent deadline, and that is coming up on us so fast. If we are indeed at 430 CO2 equivalent unit parts per million, we cannot wait until we have the perfect solution. We can't wait for something that might work 50 years out or even 30 years out. And then finally, what we do has got to be resilient, redundant, repairable, and preferably locally based. In big terms, here's where we have to go. The red line indicates business as usual. That is somewhere on that line is irretrievable catastrophe. 
the climate action plan that we around which we have to rally as the American people and as leaders of people all over the world. That climate action plan has got to stabilize carbon and bring it down in very different directions. But our choices have got to be carefully thought out. Let's look at three of those choices. Coal is being talked about a great deal because it is said to be so abundant. But here's what the life cycle of coal looks like. Now remember, we don't have time to waste, and we don't have money to waste. Time is not our friend. Money is not our friend either. What we do has got to be done absolutely clearly and cogently. Coal, the life cycle, there is the mining. You'll see a picture in just a moment of mountaintop removal in West Virginia. Mining is utterly destructive, and we in this country have a bad track record of reclaiming mined lands once the coal is taken out. Then we wash in some places high sulfur coal is washed, and in places like West Virginia it's left behind in hundreds of what the industry likes to call ponds. They are vast lakes with all kinds of toxic materials, carcinogenic materials left behind, earthen dams that will one day crumble and rainy weather and flood out areas below. And then there's transport of coal. And then there's the combustion of coal, and that's where we get carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's the disposal of the byproduct of coal, which itself is toxic and laced with heavy metals. The administration has plans to build 150 coal-fired power plants. But if those plants are built and operate to the end of their effective lifetime, they'll emit more carbon than we have remitted as a nation from 1750 to the year 2000. Ball game is over. That's the ninth inning. That's the third out. And then there's the what's called the energy return on investment. What's the energy return on investment, energy in, energy out, of carbon sequestration on 600,000 megawatt coal-fired power plants? Second option, nuclear power. Cheap way to uh, generate electricity, right? Well, not really. It's a uh, very expensive way to boil water. What's wrong with it? Well, this is the Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant that's about 50 miles from where I live, uh, southwest of Cleveland. This plant came very close to a loss of coolant accident several years ago when a workman accidentally leaned up against a pipe that went into the containment vessel and found that the pipe gave way and broke off a chunk of the containment vessel about the size of a football. How close it was to an actual meltdown, no one knows for sure, but it was a lot closer than I would want it and that you would want it if it was in your backyard. What are the problems? Well, first of all, there are problems of subsidies, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. There are issues of safety. Nuclear power is a kind of a high-wire act. You can do it successfully for year after year after year, one accident, and you flip the economics 180 degrees. There is the issue of weapons proliferation, which is our issue right now with the government and country of Iran. If you can make a reactor, you're very close to making a bomb. There is the cost of a nuclear power plant, and again, you have to weigh the cost on a level playing field against other options, including efficiency and renewables. And there's the net energy, this issue of energy return on investment. How much does it take to operate the whole nuclear fuel cycle from enrichment to entombment to waste storage? I've never seen those numbers. And then there's the issue of waste storage. Where do you put this stuff that has got to be stored out of contact with humankind for a quarter of a million years? Remember, civilization is said to be uh, on this planet for 5,000 years. 
And then there's the issue of civil liberties. If you have a solar collector on your roof, the FBI is not going to much bother you, and terrorists are not going to find that a very interesting or attractive target. But nuclear power is different. If you create nuclear power, you have materials that could be uh, diverted to make bombs or cause all kinds of other problems. That means that you are changing the civil liberties dramatically of this country. In the Energy Bill of 2005, Congress, in its inestimable wisdom, added $13 billion of new subsidies to nuclear power. And then think about the subsidies for fuel enrichment, construction costs, and insurance. The Price-Anderson Act is still on the books. If there is a major accident, nuclear power accident in this country, you and I pay the bill. The utilities are shielded from the, the worst of the damage that could happen. There's the cost of decommissioning. Once a nuclear power plant is at the end of its useful lifespan, what happens then? You've got to entomb it and people, keep people away from it forever. What does that cost? Well, we really don't know for sure. And then waste storage, which is also subsidized, that's something that you and I do. The utilities don't have to do that. Standard & Poor's said the credit rating for nuclear power simply will not improve. Efficiency gains plus decentralized sources now add at least 10 times as much capacity as nuclear power, according to Amory Levins, who goes on to describe nuclear power as the quintessentially big, long lead time, delay-prone, lumpy, complex, and contentious technology, and one that a single major accident or terrorist attack could scuttle virtually everywhere. Well, how about biofuels? Nuclear power is electricity. Biofuels is liquid portable fuels to replace oil. Well, there are all kinds of issues here. Let me just mention one. Biofuels holds out some promise, but perhaps less than we might like. This is what is called the energy return on investment, the amount of energy it takes to make energy. And notice what happens on both of these screens. If you go back and look at the energy return on investment for spindle top, in Texas, in the East Texas oil fields in the early part of the 20th century, the energy return on investment was put in one, take out 100 to 200. That's pretty good. Think of an investment in uh, your own portfolio that looks like that. But then look what happens to the energy return on investment, and look where corn ethanol is at or around, give or take, one. And at one, there simply is no point in doing it. So there are hard questions to ask here, and I don't presume to have the answers for them. But a rational energy policy, the debate that you and I ought to begin having, puts these things all in a level playing field and debates them according to rational quantitative criteria. All along, there were rumors of other things that we should have fathomed that, in fact, were very positive. William Paley, whose picture is on the screen, in the Paley Report of 1952, when the United States government was worried about its energy future then, Paley said efforts made to date to harness solar energy economically are infinitesimal. It is time for aggressive research in the whole field of solar energy. His report concluded that solar could heat 13 million homes and offices by 1975. It didn't come close. Rumors of something that we should have fathomed on the other side of this equation. It was there. 1974, the Atomic Energy Commission said by 2000, solar could provide 30% of U.S. energy needs. It's now providing around, give or take, a bit over 1% to 2%. That was the Atomic Energy Commission. And it wasn't that solar was out-technologized. It was, very simply, it was out-subsidized. This is Amory Lovins' 1976 soft energy paths, the most that uh, appeared in foreign affairs in October of 1976. The red line here, the red hash line, is the path, what he called the hard path, but that was simply the projection of all the, quote, energy experts of the time about the directions of energy policy. 
and the directions everybody concluded we had to increase supply, not decrease demand. Lovins brilliantly went to the other side of the equation and said, well, you know, what we really need to do is to go to end use and become hyper-efficient at the point of end use. And so better technology and caulk guns and better insulation would more than make up for all the stuff that we would have to do to increase supply. And it's a lot cheaper to decrease demand to become efficient than it was to increase supply. And the black line on the screen, kind of the wavy line down here at the bottom, indicates sort of the energy path that we've in fact been on. We have sort of been on a version of love and soft energy path. And what is the advantage of an energy policy based on efficiencies and renewables? Well, they could reduce imported fuels, thereby dependence on Middle Eastern oil, hence military engagement in an unstable region, lower the balance of payments deficit, reduce the cost of energy, create employment, stabilize climate, minimize oil spills, clean our air, improve our health, reduce medical expenses, remove influence of oil on U.S. politics, and improve democracy at home. And you could make a much longer list than that. Is there a downside to this? No. It just happens to be inconvenient for some interests in this country that have stopped us from the Paley Commission in 1952 and are still trying to stop us and deflect us off into other things. California, the green line here, is the United States' on average household energy consumption, around 12,000 kilowatt hours per home per year. The orange or yellow line down at the bottom, that is California energy consumption per household. Notice that California went to demand-side management, raised prices of energy, decreased household energy use, and turned out it was a pretty good bet. So if you're using less but at a higher rate, you roughly break even, but in the meantime, you create jobs, improve air quality, decrease dependence on outside sources, and so forth. This is one small example. If you bought a refrigerator, say, 15 years ago, you bought a machine that used about 1,750 kilowatt hours of electricity. State of the art now is around 200 kilowatt hours of electricity, and the standard commercial models you can get at Sears or wherever are around 350, 320 to 400 kilowatt hours per year cost per refrigerator has come down, efficiency has dramatically improved. There is unbelievable room to improve the efficiency with which we use energy. What's the transition look like? Well, start with efficient transport, either by improving the corporate average fuel efficiency standards, that's the police power of the state, or other market-based things like fee baits, where you set a, a standard for efficiency, and if you want to buy a Hummer, that's fine, you have to pay a rebate. If you want to buy a Prius or something better than that, you get a rebate back from the government. So between paying fees and rebates, it's revenue neutral. High-performance buildings. Do we know how to make buildings that sip energy? Absolutely we do. The 2030 challenge by architect Ed Masri has been adopted by the American Institute of Architects and the U.S. Green Building Council. We're now moving toward a world in which we're going to make carbon-neutral buildings. We know how to do that. Energy efficiency and distributed energy. You'll see more about that in just a moment but we know how to begin to eliminate carbon emissions probably at a profit. Prices that tell us the truth about what we do, not a downside there. Putting taxes on things that we don't want, taking them off the things like employment that we do want. And then ending perverse subsidies. 1.3 to $2.3 trillion of subsidies worldwide for things we really don't want, don't need, don't help us, don't improve the quality of life, nor do they improve the economic stability. What's it look like? Well, This is Honda's fuel cell-powered car being test-marketed in California. 
This is the American Solar Energy Society's report. It says by 2050, we could eliminate 60 to 80 percent of our carbon emissions with efficiency and renewables. They go on to conclude that efficiency and renewables have the potential to provide most, if not all, of the U.S. carbon emission reductions that will be needed to help limit carbon dioxide to 450 to 500 parts per million. Efficiency and renewables combined. This is the building we did at Oberlin College, still, I think, the only entirely solar-powered building on a U.S. college campus, powered by two photovoltaic arrays. And you'll notice the cost of photovoltaic electricity dropping dramatically. As the research goes ahead, uh, USDOE is experimenting now with a solar cell that is over 40% efficiency. And a lot of other things have photovoltaic properties. I have a student doing an honors project this year making a photoelectric cell out of a blueberry. Yes, blueberry. So I guess you eat it. Uh, when you're done using it, you just eat the thing. Look at the market for photovoltaics going up dramatically. This is a, a second array that we uh, put over the parking lot. This is Sherrod Brown, our new senator from the state of Ohio. And Sherrod, just moments after, took this picture and asked me, where did you buy that 100 kW array? Well, the answer was we had to buy it by going to Germany. Our backup was Japan. And the irony here was that the technology was developed about 24 miles from where we're standing at the NASA facility at the uh, Glenn Lewis Space Center. But we buy the equipment now from people who took the know-how and are selling it back to us. Meantime, we're paying unemployment checks in Ohio. Is this any way to run a country? I don't think so. Wind power, even in the state of Ohio, which is not on the list of good wind states, wind power has got dramatic potential. This is a wind field not far from where I live in Bowling Green, Ohio. The numbers at the top of the screen are from the Apollo Project. Notice a federal investment by the Apollo Project, a fairly modest investment, $313 billion, results in a gross domestic product gain of $1.4 trillion, 300 and some thousand some jobs. And that's with a fairly modest wind program. Rumors of unfathomable things. And now we need to move on these. No room for mistakes. No room for blind alleys. No room for Rube Goldberg devices to get carbon out of our atmosphere. This is time to deploy what we know how to do now. Wind market also going up the rate of 40% plus per year. This is an older map from the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado. The top tier of states, starting at North Dakota and the Canadian border coming down to Texas, is the Saudi Arabia of wind. Four states, North Dakota, Texas, Kansas, and South Dakota in that order, could provide more electricity than the entire U.S. electrical budget. Rumors of unfathomable things. And look at the cost of renewables all across the board dropping dramatically. That is not true of nuclear power. That is not true of carbon sequestration and what is being called clean coal, an oxymoron. But it is true of renewables. It is true of efficiency. Now, finally, I want to conclude with this. We've had 30 years of massive political failure in this country. And there are lots of reasons for it. I've mentioned, two: the concentration of media so that we never heard some of those rumors of unfathomable things. Or if we did, they were trivialized or they were marginalized. And then advertising, largest effort ever in human history to deflect human intelligence away from the serious consideration of anything important and to the issue of the day, anything that could sell news and compete, and the concentration of the news media. 
And there are other reasons, and you know them as well as I do, the concentration of money in politics and so forth and so on. The largest political failure ever. And now time is short. We have got to act. We have got to come together as a country around an agenda. Time is not our friend. Money is not our friend. A friend of mine, Tom Berry, the great philosopher and Catholic theologian, wrote a wonderful book called The Great Work. And in it, he describes the great work of any generation, and no one ever asks for their great work. It's simply thrust on them. Those young men who died on battlefields of Antietam and Gettysburg and Shiloh and other places in the Civil War to liberate African Americans and end slavery in this country, they didn't choose that. They didn't want to do that. But that was thrust on them. They did their great work greatly. And what Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation that's now passing from the scene. They didn't want to go fight in Iwo Jima and battlefields of Europe and the Battle of the Bulge and places in Korea, but they did that work greatly. Our work before us now is to eliminate carbon and stop the threat to the planet. This is a political crisis. It is not first and foremost an economic issue. It really isn't a matter of technology and R&D, although there's some things that we can certainly debate about. This is a political crisis or a political challenge, and that is our great work. Is the public with us? Well, look at the numbers here. This is from a uh, CNN and Gallup poll taken five years ago, and it's even better numbers now. 91% say that we ought to invest more in solar and wind. 87% say that we ought to mandate efficient appliances. 86% say we ought to mandate efficient buildings, which are now happening very quickly. 85% mandate efficient cars, improve the corporate average or the cafe fuel standards. Now, what happened? Here's another way to think about this. This is the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. And in the preamble, it says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union... Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and note the words in red, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, posterity. That's the only time it appears in the Constitution. Posterity. My grandchildren, their grandchildren, your grandchildren, all those generations unborn have no standing. Even in cases where our actions and the actions of our generation would deprive them of life, liberty, and property. That's the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. They have no standing. They have no voice unless we give them voice. You and I are the voice of posterity. If we don't, if we are silent, if we fail to act boldly, if we fail to act clearly on their interests, their future is aborted. Now, as a nation, we've been through a debate for decades now about the abortion of a fetus, a single human being. Now it is abortion applied to whole generations. Can we come together around the largest concept of life, life that includes the right of posterity, to enjoy all the fruits of life, life and liberty and property that you and I enjoy. I think so. And the principle is very simple. It is that no generation has the right to alter the natural cycles of the earth or impair the stability and integrity and beauty of nature, the consequences of which will always be a form of intergenerational remote tyranny. We fought a revolution over remote tyranny, but at that time it was tyranny remote in space. And now it's tyranny remote in time. 
It's the tyranny that we exert or can relieve over our posterity. And that statement is a composite. You can read the words of Thomas Jefferson in it, and Aldo Leopold, and Rachel Carson, and Bill McDonough, and some of you in this room. But this is the principle. We do not have a right to do this. And it is in our interest not to do it. Our great work is simply this. Number one, we have got to stabilize and then reduce all heat-trapping gases. We do not have an option to do that. No one, no scientist can tell you where the safe level is, whether we may already have passed it, whether it's 400 or 425 or 450 or 500 or 550 or maybe it's 600 or 700. But our momentum as carbon-burning creatures is toward that threshold. Once we pass a threshold that no one knows where it is, we can't go back. And we will, in the words of James Hansen, the great climate scientist, have created a new planet. It will not be this lovely world that we all knew. We grew up in the end of the Holocene. It will be something much different. The second part of our great work is to make a rapid transition to efficiency in solar. Not to nuclear, not to something called clean coal, not to Rube Goldberg devices, but to efficiency in solar. And we think about our lifestyles, there's a good bit of slack in the American lifestyle. There are lots of things that we can take up without sacrificing lifestyle. But if we have to sacrifice something, are we up to it? Or have we gone to the point where we simply can't sacrifice for anybody for anything? Have we come to that point? I don't think so. I think Americans at this point are waiting for leadership. I think the public is there. I think the leaders have yet to show up. And then there is this task of making a world that is secure for everybody. Imagine American leadership in the world exerted to make sure that no child goes to bed hungry at night. Everybody has adequate medical care. Everybody has adequate security and education and housing and the good things of life. That that is part of our mission. It isn't to browbeat the world into some Procrustean vision of what we think it ought to be. It is to allow the liberation and human development across this planet in a way that is envisioned by the wisest among us and in UN documents and so forth. Imagine a politics of this great work where we see ourselves as trustees. Now think about that word trustee for just a minute. It's a word where left and right come together. Edmund Burke, the founder of modern conservatism and the author of a wonderful little book in 1798, the the fountainhead of conservatism in this country, Edmund Burke, in that book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, describes the current generation, the living generation, as a generation that is obliged to take the best of the past and pass it on to the future. They're trustees. He described this as an entailed inheritance, and your job is not to alter much but to pass it on. And if Burke were here tonight with us, he would understand that that entailed inheritance also includes the ecological requisites on which everything else depends. Clean air, clean water, stable climate, biodiversity. That's a point on which we would agree. Thomas Jefferson, the other end of the extreme, founder of modern radical politics. And Thomas Jefferson, a man who was most always throughout his life in debt. Jefferson argued that no generation had the right to impose debt on succeeding generations. Well, think about that. If Jefferson were here with us tonight, he would agree, as Burke would, that debt includes ecological debt. No generation has the right to push a bow wave of debt off, ecological or financial, off on its descendants or posterity. No right whatsoever. So you can see a convergence of left and right around the idea that we are trustees and we are obliged 
by the deepest of our oaths and the best of our thinking and all of our morality and religions, we are obliged to pass on the best of the past to the future, and that includes a planet with a stable climate. And then finally, this work, as Thomas Berry describes it and as we can see it, this is sacred work. Politics is a form of religion, I think, but the work, this great work that you and I have to undertake, this is sacred work. It's about the protection of life on this planet. It's about the rights of posterity. It's about building prosperity that is true prosperity, not prosperity based on theft of one generation from all those to follow. This is great work. It's our sacred work. It's the work that we begin here at your university, becoming carbon neutral, at my university becoming carbon neutral, becoming zero-discharge places, and equipping a generation of young people to carry out the best of this great work. I thank you. You've just heard the end of a presentation by David Orr, author of five books on environmental themes and chair of the Environmental Studies Program at Oberlin College, in addition to many other posts and activist involvements he holds. This Northern Spirit radio production is called Spirit in Action, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. David Orr followed up his presentation with a question-and-answer session. Due to time constraints, we can include only a couple of the questions, some especially relevant to the exploration of the relationship between spirit and action, which is the quest of my programs. Here is David Orr's response to two questions from the audience at UW-Eau Claire. As an educator, I'm sure you can appreciate the uh, receptive audience that you have here tonight. I'm student teaching, and in the next couple of weeks I'm going to alternative energies and global warming with my freshman science classes. What would you suggest to be the best way to get this message across to maybe 25 or 30 high school students who don't really care about anything? <laughs> Good luck. Well, I, I'll tell you. I think people care at those ages. I think what we see sometimes in looking at, at young people that don't care, we assume they don't care, is we haven't given them a chance to care. And I think life is pretty hard for a lot of young people. I mean, it's, it's tougher now than it was when I was growing up. There were more drugs and whatnot, and there were more temptations, more ways to go wrong. And there were plenty when I was growing up. That was uh, 1922, and uh, there, were a lot of ways, there were a lot of ways to go wrong. But this invites a really long answer that none of you really want to hear. But I think we do education really badly, and I think we do it particularly badly for young males uh, in the low to high teenage years. One uh, woman friend of mine says that that's the weak link of every culture. And you think about it. We've had a recent experience in Virginia Tech. That is very likely the weak link in a culture. And so how do we harness the energy? And young people at that age are going to be creative. I mean, they're going to be creative either destructively or constructively, choices of how to channel that. And I'll tell you, I don't, I don't have any answer to your question. I think it's a great question. What I do in my classes or what I try to do is to get young people working on solving real problems. So I've got a design class right now that's taken an old rundown house uh, owned by the college. The college uh, gave it to them to work on. The goal is to make that house carbon neutral and affordable cost. And they invest unbelievable amounts of energy. The other night, I find it's an evening class that meets, and they uh, finally, about an hour after the official ending of the class, I had to basically kick them out of the classroom building. It was getting close to midnight. I, yeah, I'm done. I, I can't go on any further. 
But I think this generation, the current generation, has got a lot of problems, a lot of challenges, but they have a huge amount of energy. And I think for my generation, the older generation, uh, our job is to give them every opportunity to be leaders, to exert leadership, and give them the tools to make sure it somehow gets paid for. But I, I think that that's the challenge before us. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate your message. And I hear a lot about what we must do. My coming to the lecture tonight involved a drive of about 12 miles, which, of course, I burned energy. So I'm wondering if you can give me some guidance about the importance of my individual use of energy. Does it simply pale in comparison to the importance of what I do to influence my government? Or is it something significant that I do when I make choices, and how would I make those choices in my individual, daily, private routine? Just a couple of random thoughts. One is, my dad was a Presbyterian preacher, so I grew up saturated in guilt, and it finally wore off. And so anything you can do to make yourself feel guilty or others feel guilty is uh, actually is not very useful. I think what is useful, however, that is the, the calibration of private life, how, what we buy, how we live, is important, not just symbolically, but it is important because it's kind of a unified life. It avoids the charge of hypocrisy, and that's merely useful. But it, it's also the kind of thing that I think that we, we need to do because it's the right way to live. And there are no saints here. We are all embedded in this thing called the American way of life. I flew out here on a plane spewing carbon. And I try to buy carbon offsets and that kind of thing. I try to offset that in other ways. I don't know that that works. It may be that just assuages my guilt. But we need to begin to build step by step lifestyles and lives that are sustainable. And I don't think that this is sackcloth and ashes. I think sometimes if we wait too long, it will be grim. But a sustainable world, I don't think, has to be grim. It's a world with front porches and better neighbors and more conversations and more bowling leagues and better baseball leagues, more poetry, more, more fun, more potlucks, better food because it's grown locally. It's a world of bike trails. It's a world where we take charge of our own governments uh, like Vermont or New England town meetings. If we wait too long, yeah, it'll get grim and nasty, but it doesn't have to be that way if we act now. But that's where lifestyle becomes uh, kind of a community thing. But the, most of this shouldn't be done in terms of, you know, this woe is us, you know, a PC checklist. There's nothing more boring than that. It ought to be done in a spirit of adventure, community, sharing, and I think we can make it. I'm not a religious man, but I think we need an eco-church. And I'm right now reading the autobiography of Martin Luther King and the impact he had by nonviolent resistance. And I'm wondering if, if there is some kind of a, an ability to gather people together who have the same concerns, which gives a, an opportunity for leadership to emerge mm-hmm. within a group sharing the same concerns. My own sense is that I'm one person. And so I may feel passionate about something, but I need to put that to work in some group. So if an eco-church were there, then I would have a place to go to try to focus my energies. And maybe by some kind of resistance, we could force things more quickly. Well, thanks for that. Two comments back. One is that organized religion, including a number of evangelical groups, is already beginning to move. 
and the work of Richard Sizek and other groups in Washington and elsewhere, I think, is beginning to shift the ground of religion. And what I like about that is that this is in every way a spiritual thing. I ended the talk by saying this is sacred work, and whatever your religion is, or whatever your faith might be, or if you don't have one, I think the category of sacred is still important. So I agree with what you're saying in the large. And I can say that I believe that I think churches are moving on this. Are they moving fast enough? No, I don't think so. Trying to create an, an eco-church doesn't have a lot of appeal for me. That's not to say it shouldn't be done, but it's not something that I'll do. But should we begin to connect our faith traditions with the way we live and how we live on a planet? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the best projects I've seen in the last few years was done by a historian of religion and a friend of mine, Mary Evelyn Tucker, who's now at Yale. She and her husband, John Grimm, organized a series of conferences at Harvard on ecology and world religions. And it brought people from all kinds of faith traditions. There's a volume on Muslims and ecology and Hindus and ecology and Jains and ecology and Jews and so forth. And what came out of that is really quite extraordinary. When people began to ransack their faith traditions and scriptures for advice and counsel and wisdom on how to live on the earth, we found out that there is a treasure trove of ideas out there. There is no shortage of religious dimension to this from all faith traditions. And I like that. So whatever the faith that you might have or the lack of faith you you may assume you have, I think that tying religion together with this is a natural kind of thing to do. The gist of your point, your larger point, I think is really well taken, and I I appreciate you, you making that point. Thank you all. You've been listening to a Spirit in Action program featuring a presentation by David Orr, chair of the Environmental Studies program at Oberlin College. Perhaps the best way to track him down and hear him in person is by visiting his Oberlin College staff webpage, which you can connect to easily from my northernspiritradio.org webpage. You can track down the five books he's authored, and perhaps you can hear him speak full and unabridged in your area. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than Joy and selflessness. To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.